people oftentimes think, oh, healthcare professionals, they're really smart. They have lots of education. They have no problems. They don't stereotype. They don't do all these sorts of things. And of course, of course we do. And so turning a psychological lens and using healthcare professionals as my Petri dish has been a really interesting and rewarding aspect of my career. Welcome to Care to Connect, an interprofessional healthcare series about interprofessional collaboration in healthcare. I'm your host, Asma Gafoor. More than 60% of medical errors are a result of poor communication between medical professionals, and patients bear the brunt of these errors. In recent years, researchers have been focusing on failures resulting from the messy interplay between emotions, interpersonal relationships, and unspoken medical hierarchies in a healthcare team. For example, a 2017 study discovered that negative emotions towards senior staff, such as anger, distrust, fear of judgment, leads many healthcare professionals to sometimes stay silent when they have questions or even concerns. By not acknowledging the dangers of these kinds of communication problems, we run the risk of alienating team members in the circle of care, including the patient. So why are these team dynamics so complicated anyways? And what can we do about it? Let's find out. Joining me today to discuss all of this and the psychology of interprofessional collaboration is Dr. Zubin Austin, a University of Toronto faculty member and professor and Cawthor Chair of Management at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy and Institute for Health Policy, Management, and Evaluation. Dr. Austin has received many awards for the impact of his research and teaching, and in 2017, he was installed as a Fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. Currently, he has published over 200 peer-reviewed papers and authored four textbooks, with his research primarily focusing on the professional and personal development of the healthcare workforce. What does the collaboration part of interprofessional collaboration really look like? So how do we know we're doing it in a team? It's a complicated question you're asking. And depending upon who you're asking, you're going to get a lot of different answers with respect to what collaboration looks like. If you ask a clinician, they're likely to focus on activities, tasks. For example, the pharmacist does a medication history then the physician relies on that medication history to make prescribing decisions. I tend to look at the issue of collaboration in a slightly different way, and partly it's because most of my research focuses on psychology. Though I am a pharmacist by original qualification, my PhD and my research is really focused on psychology. So when I think about collaboration, I look at it from a psychological perspective. And the word that comes to mind with respect to collaboration from a psychological perspective is the word interdependency. Now, I'm sure you've heard the word dependency. You've heard the word independent. Interdependency is a slightly different kind of psychological state. When we are dependent on someone, it means we basically give up control, we give up power, and we simply do what we're told. When we are independent, it's exactly the opposite. It's as though we believe we are perfectly fine without listening to anyone, without interacting with anyone. Interdependency is a mixed state where we have some control, some power, and some autonomy in certain areas, but in others we recognize we need to depend on other people. At its best, this is what collaboration is. Collaboration is a form of interdependency where psychologically we understand and are grounded in our own independence, 
but recognize we cannot and should not do anything on our own. So we cheerfully and gratefully depend on others for certain activities. It's that cheerfulness and gratefulness that makes collaboration work. And when we have all of those psychological underpinnings in place, that's when we're able to collaborate most effectively. So what do you think would make it hard for different professions to collaborate with each other? Um, it's a very important question. You can think about that answer in terms of maybe different bins. One important barrier to collaboration is actually the system that we work in. Regardless of how open-minded and collaborative you may be as an individual, sometimes the system introduces barriers that make it very difficult or impossible to collaborate. So, for example, if one professional gets paid to do something, and that's how they pay their mortgage, feed their children, go on vacations, and live their life, the system might actually undercut efforts to collaborate if it means that I actually lose money because somebody else is doing a job that they're qualified to do. So the remuneration system that each professional works under is a system issue that interferes with collaboration. Similarly, legal or liability issues can sometimes interfere with people's best intentions to collaborate effectively. If the law hasn't quite figured out what collaborative practice looks like, it makes individual clinicians feel defensive and think, you know what, I would like to collaborate with you, but I got to cover my butt because I can't risk being sued. So that's a whole series of things that are system issues. There are also professional issues. Professions are bigger than professionals that are in that profession, and professions have an interest in protecting themselves. Sometimes professional organizations can undercut attempts to collaborate between individual professionals because they feel they need to protect their reputation. They need to protect their turf. They need to protect their jobs. And sometimes a professional who wants to collaborate will be at odds with a profession that's trying to circle the wagons and protect itself. In some cases, individuals themselves are the barrier to collaboration. Some people, we all know, simply like being the boss. Other people simply like being told what to do. Being told what to do or being the boss or wanting to be the boss makes it difficult for people to be truly interdependent. And so each of us needs to reflect a little bit on our own psychology and how that's interfering with our capacity to truly collaborate. It's understandable if two people from vastly different professions may have difficulty seeing eye to eye on a subject, but what about people with similar backgrounds, such as midwives and obstetricians? Since they practically share a job description, collaboration should be smooth sailing, right? Well, not exactly. In the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, as midwives became more prominent in Ontario and other places in Canada, interprofessional tension emerged between midwives and obstetrician gynecologists. On the one hand, obstetricians, who are physicians, had spent lots and lots of time and lots and lots of money and lots and lots of their own energy to qualify to do an important job, help women deliver um, babies. As midwives became more prominent, they were starting to see literally their business go away and their incomes drop. 
And that was a significant challenge for people who'd invested their lives in doing this activity. The other thing that started to happen was that it appeared to obstetricians at least that midwives were taking the easy cases, the uncomplicated, healthy, normal deliveries that were the things that allowed an obstetric practice to flourish. And instead, what obstetricians were doing were the incredibly difficult, complicated cases that didn't necessarily have the positive, happy outcome of a healthy and happy baby and mother. And that started to contribute to tension. Worse, for the obstetricians, there was a belief that the midwives would do the easy job, but the minute it got difficult, they just hand it over to the obstetrician, who suddenly had to parachute in and clean up the mess. And this was extraordinarily challenging because obstetricians would say, that's not how we work. We need to be connected to women throughout pregnancy. We can't just be called in at the last minute if you can't handle it. These kinds of interprofessional tensions were really, from the obstetrician's perspective, a reason not to collaborate. From the midwife's perspective, this had a different look. At that time, in particular, the majority of obstetricians, the majority of physicians in general, were male, and the majority of midwives were female. What this looked like, from the perspective of many midwives, was a bunch of men bullying a bunch of women around something that only women do, deliver babies. This notion that midwives were stealing business, this notion that midwives were somehow messing up and then just saying, oops, I can't do it, you take it over, was a way of devaluing the work of women helping other women. Worse from the midwife's perspective, how unfair is it that even for a healthy, normal, everything is fine pregnancy, an obstetrician would get paid five times as much as a midwife to do the exact same job. This was an example to midwives of a systemic bias issue. As we think about that today, you can see perhaps both sides have legitimate grievances against each other, but the way this evolved ended up becoming a little bit of a civil war. And in the middle, you had women who simply wanted to have the best possible birthing experience. When the professions of midwifery and obstetrics simply couldn't get this sorted out and couldn't find a way to collaborate more effectively, it was actually these mothers who ended up suffering the most. Amongst professions in general, we have made tremendous advances, I would say, in the last 40 or 50 years. In part, it's because exactly of the education you and other students listening to this podcast are actually receiving today. We talk about, we model, we discuss, we teach, and we assess interprofessionalism from year one of all health professions programs. You, as a young pharmacy student, from the day you started in our program, you now expect that you are going to be collaborating. So it doesn't come as a surprise to you at the last minute. What's also evolved are practice models that make it clearer who does what. Instead of requiring each obstetrician and each midwife to figure this out on their own, there are now practice models, there are guidelines, there are algorithms, there are agreed-upon consensus statements that make it clearer what each profession can and should contribute to the care of a patient. What's also evolved is the legal system that helps us to understand what joint liability looks like. Who is legally responsible when things go wrong? So it doesn't seem to, for example, obstetricians that 
well, the midwives do the easy stuff and then you saddle us with the hard stuff and then I'm the one that gets sued when it doesn't go well. So the legal system has started to figure out what collaboration looks like. Payment systems have also evolved so that there's greater fairness in the way different professionals with different backgrounds and different qualifications get paid in order to do the same work. While it's evolved and it's improved, we're still a long way off, of course, from it being perfect. One of the most important components of a relationship is trust. If you're working alongside someone, you want to know that they can deliver results. The same mentality applies when you're working in healthcare as well, but many are still hesitant to put their faith in another person, even if that person they're being asked to trust is a fellow healthcare professional. Yep, trust is absolutely essential to interdependency. Truly independent people have a difficult time trusting others, which is why they feel the need to do everything on their own. You and many of your listeners may be able to relate to this, not in a clinical context, but just in an academic context. You know what happens when you are assigned a group project and there's four or five of you, perhaps you're strangers, you don't know each other, and you're all going to get the same grade for an assignment. And immediately what happens? You think, oh no, I'm stuck with so-and-so. I'm going to have to do all the work. They're going to get the same grade as me. That's not fair. Trusting that your colleagues will pull their own weight, do their job reliably, show up on time for things, that is a hard thing to actually do. And in many cases, you don't automatically trust people that you have to work with until they prove themselves. That's where we're at in interprofessional collaboration in many ways. Simply because you are a pharmacist, somebody is a family doctor, someone else is a nurse, you have titles, you have degrees, you have job descriptions, doesn't necessarily mean you're automatically trusted by one another. We all need to prove ourselves that, in fact, we are reliable, honest, trustworthy, and competent. And that takes time. Recognizing that learning to trust one another so that we can ultimately become interdependent and that this does take time can be difficult because some of us are more likely to immediately trust other people with certain jobs. And as a result, if you are already at the point of trusting someone and that person isn't trusting you, you might end up with hurt feelings and think, that's not fair. I trust them. Why don't they trust me? And in essence, what is at the start a professional issue starts to simply become a personal problem. So do you think one way to improve our ability to collaborate is to maybe learn to trust a little more? In an ideal world, sure, but that's a really hard thing to do. Learning to trust more is a very complicated psychological process. Instead, what most universities, like the University of Toronto, has decided to do is to see the, way, the best way we can help future practitioners accelerate their path to trusting one another is to get them to learn to trust one another while you're still in school. That's why we have such an emphasis on interprofessional education across all the health professions programs at the University of Toronto. If from first year, you're already learning with, learning from, learning together, you're already starting to learn about different professions, then when you start practicing your profession three, four, five, six years later, 
you kind of got a little bit of a jump start on trusting one another because you have some kind of previous experience with different professions and different professionals already. Does how we talk to our healthcare colleagues matter as much as almost as much as what we're saying? Many people, and I would be one of them, think that how we say certain things matters much more than the substance of what we're saying. Let me give you an example. I won't use a professional example. I'll use a, a, a patient example. So you're a pharmacy student. At some point, you'll be a pharmacist. And let's say you are speaking to a patient. Um, let's say you're educating a patient about how to use a medication called acyclovir, which is oftentimes used for a variety of different uh, viral infections. And for some regimens of acyclovir, you sometimes have to take that medication five times a day. So as a young, healthy person, you might say, okay, well, if I'm told to take something five times a day, I'm going to do what I'm told in order to get better. It might not be an issue for you. But let's say you're talking to a patient and you say, oh, you need to take this medication five times a day. Is that going to be a problem? If your patient says five times a day, pff, yeah, sure, that's not going to be a problem. What are the words there? Yeah, that's not going to be a problem. But if you actually heard what I said and saw the way I said it, you know that when I say, yeah, that's not going to be a problem. Yeah, that's a huge problem. Nonverbal communication is sometimes thought to constitute 70 or 80% of the true content of what is being communicated. How we say something is crucially important. If all we do is pay attention to the specific words, the transcript of an interaction, we are missing a huge amount of information. And that applies to interprofessional communication as well. If a pharmacist has done what they think is a great job taking a medication history and goes to, let's say, a family physician and says, oh, I took a medication history on this patient. Here you go. And the family physician goes, oh, and just puts it on a table. What message is really being sent there? How we say certain things matters incredibly. and understanding not just the power of our words, but more broadly, the power of our communication in helping to enhance collaboration, create trust, and foster the conditions necessary for interdependency is essential. So in what specific ways do you think we can improve the way we talk to our colleagues? So in that interaction you just mentioned, I think maybe a, a thank you was missing from the family doctor's part of the response. Perhaps a thank you was missing, or perhaps honesty was also missing. If for whatever reason, this family physician is not going to rely on the medication history, rather than simply ignoring the, miss, the situation and going, oh, and putting it aside and sending mixed messages, maybe what the family physician needs to say is, you know what, thank you for doing this work. But I need to let you know, the last time that I relied on a pharmacist's medication history, that pharmacist made a mistake. And as a result, I made a mistake. And I got sued. And a patient got harmed. And all of this stuff happened. So I'm a little bit wary about relying on a medication history again. Let's take it a little bit more slowly. Don't just hand me something and assume I'm immediately going to trust you. Let's try to figure out a way of making this work. 
where you can understand why I'm not necessarily immediately going to trust you. That's a very different way when you say it with a calm tone, you give an explanation, you try to demonstrate, I want to work with you, but I just can't right now. That's a really different way of communicating instead of just simply ignoring it, pretending you're going to use it, or saying really dismissively, oh, you people make mistakes all the time. There's no way I'm going to trust you. Leave me alone. That's what I mean by the substance of what's being said and the way it's being said need to work hand in glove. There's something that we don't always talk about in the medical world, which is a kind of hierarchy that exists, often with the physician on the top. So do you think we talk about this hierarchy enough? We certainly talk about it and think about it and act within the concept of hierarchy all the time, but I'm not sure we actually talk about it in the most constructive way. Hierarchy simply refers to a pecking order, a notion that certain individuals have certain responsibilities and privileges that others don't. The medical hierarchy in our system is established and reinforced by the legal scope of practice of health professions. The way that our health professions are structured and our health system operates right now the reality is that physicians have the broadest and most comprehensive scope of practice of all health professions, and that is in large part an acknowledgement of the advanced education that physicians have across all facets of healthcare compared to other professions which may have a more focused uh, preparation. So, for example, pharmacists' education is more focused on medications. Physical therapists are more focused on musculoskeletal issues. Scope of practice is where the power of hierarchy resides. I don't think it's particularly realistic, helpful, or valuable to ignore scope of practice. There is a reason why physicians have a broad scope of practice, and that scope of practice is what reinforces the hierarchy. But, and this is a very important but, simply having a broad scope of practice doesn't make you a king or a queen. It doesn't make you an emperor who gets to say and do whatever they want. Instead, what it does is gives you the opportunity to recognize you can't and shouldn't try to do everything on your own because it's not safe, it's not effective, and it's not efficient. One of my favorite stories that sort of reflects this whole issue of hierarchy is a colleague of mine who is a family physician and she happens to be Quebecois and speaks French and English perfectly well. The time she told me the story, she worked at a large, busy family practice unit at St. Michael's Hospital. And she had worked in a family health team environment for many years. And as a result, she had a pharmacist who could be there for medication, um, education and advice. She had a dietitian, a social worker. She had nurse practitioners, nurses, a whole team. And they all worked together very effectively. She admittedly was a little bit skeptical about collaboration to begin with because she is an independent person who prefers to rely on herself rather than necessarily trust others. And that's fine. But she learned to sort of over time uh, work interdependently. And then one day, a French Canadian patient came into the practice and nobody else in the practice could speak French except for her. And so all of a sudden, she had to do all of the education around how to use medications. 
She had to do all the education around diet and lifestyle. She had to do all of the social work. She had to explain physical therapy. And all of a sudden she realized, and this was simply because of a language barrier, how much work there was to do and how her knowledge, despite her scope of practice, her depth of knowledge in each of these different areas was so much more limited than her colleagues who had that specialty knowledge in those different areas. And for her, that was an enormous learning opportunity around why not only interdependency is important, but why it's invaluable. No one person, regardless of their legal scope of practice, can or should do every activity in healthcare. Something that you have done some research on is um, people who are pharmacists becoming physicians. So they are in touch with kind of the culture and individuals of both. So looking through that paper, I saw that one of the participants made the statement that doctors, unlike pharmacists, are materialistic. So in your opinion, do you think these kind of stereotypes influence how we interact with each other? Absolutely. Pharmacists, physicians, nurses, physical therapists, healthcare professionals are human beings, and all human beings are prone to stereotyping. I would hope that well-educated university students such as yourself recognize and understand the, the negative power and extraordinary limitations associated with stereotyping, yet all of us are prone to it and sometimes don't even recognize when we engage in stereotyping. Stereotyping is a way of rapidly cognitively processing complex information. And when we categorize people, it allows us to take a whole series of mental shortcuts in terms of how we interact with them. But the problem is none of us are that stereotype. When a participant in that study used the term, oh, physicians are materialistic, they were insulting physicians. And they were doing it in a way that doesn't necessarily sound insulting, but clearly was trying to establish an I'm nicer than you kind of an attitude. Stereotyping has tremendous negative consequences, not just for individual relationships, but for society as a whole. Look at what's happening in our world today and the way entire categories of people are being demonized or described in certain ways for political endpoints. We do this on a moment-by-moment -moment basis as human beings. It's one of the most tenacious problems in psychology. Just because you are a healthcare professional doesn't mean that magically you are inoculated against stereotyping. And so when you start thinking in categorical terms, all doctors are X, all pharmacists are Y, every nurse is like this, when you start thinking in that way, it cannot help but spill over into your behavior. And all we can hope to do is try to reduce stereotypical thinking by exposing individuals when they're students, when they're learners, when they're first developing their professional identity to other professions as a way of reducing stereotyped behavior As you might have guessed, collaboration, interprofessional education, and an interdependent mindset may be the keys to improving collaboration between healthcare professionals. With that in mind, I assume that despite the fact that we are different individuals with different professions, we do have the tools to teach effective collaboration. But when I asked Dr. Austin about this subject, well, his answer surprised me. 
And so it's a bit of a mixed bag. What the literature tells us right now is that we have, I'd say at best, very mixed success in the way that we are teaching interprofessionalism. And that might be a reflection of the fact that we don't spend enough time, we haven't refined our methods, we're still learning how to teach interprofessionalism. The reality is some form of interprofessionalism is being learned despite what we might be teaching. We might be actually reinforcing negative stereotypes. I'm sure you and your colleagues can appreciate the complexity of trying to teach interprofessionalism to 1,800 health professional students across 13 different professions and faculties at a big complicated university like the University of Toronto or any big complicated university. It's hard. But just because we haven't figured it out properly yet doesn't mean we should just throw the whole thing out and assume it cannot be taught. Ultimately, interprofessionalism is about learning how to be interdependent. And learning to be interdependent goes well beyond a health professional program and into who you are as a human being. Learning interdependency is a form of citizenship. It's a form of psychological or sociological approach to living. Your capacity to learn interprofessionalism didn't start when you started your pharmacy degree, Asma. It started in public school, where you learned to play nicely with other people, where you learned to respect other people who might look differently to you, where you learned how to communicate effectively when people didn't speak as clearly as you do. The idea is that the raw materials of interprofessionalism are the raw materials of interdependency. And where we really need to focus our time and energy in that, frankly, is not at university with you. It's in public school. It's in society as a whole so that we actually learn how to live with diverse other people and not just live with them, but actually realize, wow, how amazing it is that we live in this kind of a diverse society. Learning how to collaborate is an ongoing process. Just a class or two may not be enough to prepare young healthcare professionals for all the different kinds of situations and personality types that we're about to come across in our careers. But that doesn't mean we should forget the learning process altogether. I believe Dr. Austin puts it best. You don't solve the problem of interprofessionalism by a single course, a single podcast, or a single IPE event. You need a lot of repeated exposure and you need to create an environment where IPE is everywhere in order to have the message really be absorbed by individuals. And so you are carrying the ball forward a couple of meters and eventually you'll score that touchdown. Care to Connect was produced by Asma Gafur. It was written by Michelle Mogilner and Asma Gafur and edited by Jill Johnson. A special thanks to Della Croteau from the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy as well as Sylvia Languin, Dean Listing from the Center for Interprofessional Education at the University of Toronto. Music is by Pottington Bear, and artwork is by Kate Lazar. 